I don't like loose ends. I, I don't like it, you know, in fact, when we're like DVRing a show and it's going to be a two-parter, we don't watch the first part until we know the second part has recorded so we can watch them both at the same time. I don't like loose ends. I don't like living in that tension of wondering what's going to happen. I'm not a big fan of finishing a movie and the credits rolling and not feeling like it's really come to a conclusion. And you know, for some of those movies, they'll roll the credits all the way through and then they'll put a few little teasers at the end. I don't want to wait two more years till the teaser comes out. I want to know that it finished and it's done and it's complete. And even if I don't have all the details in my mind, I can see the story being completed and I can kind of be satisfied with completion. I don't want to live in that tension of, of not being done. I don't want to finish a book and close the cover and realize, oh, there's more to go. Unless I have the next book in hand. I want to see the loose ends wrapped up. And yet, I realize that living in the real world, there are times when we find ourselves living in tension, living with paradoxes. One of those is a, a paradox that Charlene and I embraced a long time ago. It actually comes right out of the Scripture but it was expressed well to us in a book by Evelyn Christensen in our library, 248.4 CHR, if you want to go look for it, uh, that was uh, expressed by Evelyn Christensen. And the title of the book is Gaining Through Losing. And the premise of Evelyn Christensen's, Christensen's book is when we go through difficult times, when we go through times where there's loss, and God will use those times, he will use those difficulties to give us new insight, to give us new outlook. And in so doing, we gain, we grow, we're positioned to even better help other people. What a paradox to think that we can gain through losing and because we live in a world that says the more you get, the more you gain, and the more you gain, the better you are. And God says, no, you gain through losing. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me for the, and, and for the gospel will save it. What good is it if someone would gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Paradox. In our passage today, we're going to dwell in the realm of paradox and tension. And it will not be resolved. And I'm okay with that. If God chooses not to fully resolve a paradox or a divine tension, then I'm going to trust him in the middle of the tension. Today we're in the most difficult chapter of the most difficult section of the book of Romans. We're in chapter 11. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn them, turn to Romans chapter 11. Now Romans chapter 11 is 36 verses. And if you spent any time reading Romans chapter 11 this past week in preparation for today, it's possible, like me, you at first wondered, so why is this here in God's Word? 
You know, I, I have a friend that says nothing is ever um, accidental. Nothing's ever coincidental in God's word. So God allowed Romans 11 to be here for a purpose. And yet when you read it, you're going, okay, I don't, I don't get it. I, that's how I was. I read it and said, God, I don't get it. I spent a lot of time in Romans 11. And today I'm going to share with you several lessons that we can learn from Romans 11 regarding God's mercy and his grace. Now, I am not going to go through every single verse word by word today. You don't have that kind of time. I don't have that kind of energy. So today we're going to survey Romans 11, and we're going to survey these 36 verses. Remember, this section of Romans is dealing with our fourth question of Romans, and it is, who is really in control of this world? In chapter 9, we saw that this world is under the control of a sovereign God, and yet the sovereign God gives us freedom to make choices. And that brings us into attention. So am I responsible for my choices, or is God responsible? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes God puts us in a position and says, I want to see how you're going to respond. And yet he still holds me accountable. Tension. We saw last week that this world is under the control of a sovereign God who's accessible. And that was the verse that we saw there that God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And today we're going to see this morning in this chapter, we serve a God who although is completely independent, chooses to be merciful and gracious, and we face this tension as we live within his sovereignty and his mercy. In chapter 11, Paul is still focusing on the Jewish believers in his audience. When Phoebe came into Rome with the letter of Rome, from Paul, the letter to the Romans, she went into these different small house churches and they were combined of people that were from a Jewish background, like the Apostle Paul, and had come to believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. And there were non-Jewish people, the word is Gentiles, that would be just about every one of us right now, who are non-Jewish people, and yet we have seen Jesus as the Messiah, and they were together. And yet we're going to see, especially as we get on, there was tension in those little house churches because several years earlier, all of the Jews had been kicked out of Rome. and They were forced to evacuate the city. And so for upwards to five to seven years, all the house churches in Rome were then led by and by these non-Jewish believers. But then under Nero, the Jews were allowed to come back. And they come back to these churches where, you know, if you've ever been in that situation where maybe you've been gone from a location for several years and you come back and your friends have developed new routines and, and, and there's maybe some new relationships and, and all of a sudden you feel a little bit like a stranger until things work out. Well, that's kind of the tension that was in the Roman church and we'll, we'll see that as we get into the latter chapters. So Paul is reminding them that the Jewish believers, God still has a place for you. And God still holds high regard. And the non-Jewish believers know that we're to be a, a, a team here. We're to be partners. So we have that reality going on. Paul balances his instructions, and we'll see that, between the Jewish and the non-Jewish believers. So in, in verses 1 to 11 of Roman, we find the first bit of paradox. 
And, and it's, I'll state it this way. Mercy, although rejected, does not reject. Mercy, although rejected, does not reject. Listen to these first words of Paul. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Last week as we finished what we call chapter 10, quick reminder, when Paul wrote Romans, he didn't divide it into chapters and verses he just wrote. In fact, Koine Greek, which was the the language that Paul used, didn't even have punctuation. So he just wrote. So what we call chapter 10 ended with that word picture of God standing at the door with his arms open, beckoning his people to come home, beckoning them to come in, and holding out his hands to receive a disobedient and obstinate people. And Paul says, so did God reject his people? Did he slam the door? If they're not going to come home, forget them. Absolutely not. Sadly to say, that's a question that some have answered yes to. Some have suggested that Israel has been replaced by the church, that Israel doesn't matter anymore. Paul says, no, by no means. Absolutely not. He says, I'm a Jew. I I grew up. I mean, he he went through his pedigree at one point. I I was the tribe of Benjamin. And and, and he, he says in Philippians, I was a... Uh, Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was zealous. I followed the law, all of that. But then I met Christ and I realized it's all about him. So Paul said, no, God has not rejected his people. And then he goes into a story that all of his Jewish believers would have known. It's a story that comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. Story of a prophet named Elijah. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah gathered together the prophets of Baal. Baal was a a, a fertility god that was being worshipped by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And and so he gathered them all up on Mount Carmel. And he said, we're going to have a test and see who's really the right god. And he said, so you guys build an altar and you sacrifice to it. And they spent all day sacrificing to it. And after a while, Elijah is making fun of them. Uh, the text, it, it, we're, our text is usually nicer than this, but in the, in the original text, it's like, is, is he in the bathroom? Is he not available? Is he taking a nap? And finally, Elijah builds an altar according to the law with 12 stones, and he sends guys down, and they bring up water, and they douse the altar, and they douse everything, and, and Elijah just prays and says, God, show them who you are. And, and, and fire comes down from heaven and it burns up everything. It burns up the altar of Baal. It burns up the altar. It burns up the stones. It burns up everything. And the people are like, whoa, the Lord, he is God. And then the very next day, Queen Jezebel sends a note to Elijah and says, in 24 hours, I'm going to make sure you are like the prophets of Baal. They were all killed, by the way. You're dead. So Elijah, like any self-respecting prophet of God, who has just seen a great victory, turns and runs. And he runs and he runs and he runs. And he runs all the way to the Mount Horeb, which many believe it's Mount Sinai. And, and twice, and, I, and God comes to him and says, Why are you here, Elijah? Oh, I'm the only one. They've killed all the prophets. It's only me. And the second time, God comes to him, and this time in that still, small voice, Why are you here, Elijah? Why are you here? 
And, and as Elijah goes through his little woe is me rant, God reminds him, I've reserved 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God says through Paul here in Romans after that story, the fact is there's always a remnant chosen by grace. And if there's a remnant, verse 6, by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace, it would no longer be, if it were works, it would no longer be grace. God says, Paul says, God says through Paul, there's a remnant. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant that I preserve in my sovereignty that, that don't bow to the, the, the culture, that don't bow to Baal, that, that follow me. And, and Paul is saying this through the, to his Jewish brothers, you're not alone. Even though the nation has rejected God by, by and large, mercy does not reject even if it's rejected, God has accepted you. You're not alone. Paul goes on and he quotes in verse 8, he, he quotes uh, Moses. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. God says, you know what, when they rejected me, when they made that decision, then I made a decision to have them not be able to fully understand who I was. Not every individual, but as a nation. He quotes from the Psalms, verses 9 and 10. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs or be bent forever. Paul leaves us in attention. Did they harden their hearts? Or did God harden their hearts and not, have them, and not allow them to see and hear the truth? Yes, it's a tension. But through their loss, through their rejection, the rest of the world gained. We get into the lengthier section beginning in verse 11. And we discover the second core truth of this chapter. Mercy receives those otherwise considered unacceptable. Mercy receives those who are otherwise considered unacceptable. Verse 11, again I say, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel Envious. God has not allowed his people to fall beyond the point of any recovery. In a sense, it's like he took his people and put them in a divine timeout and set them aside so that they could see how his grace would extend to those who were non Jews, who were not part of the original family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not part of the original 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes, and yet God extended his grace to them, to you, to me. And God's desire was when they saw that, when they saw his grace and mercy, that they would respond. And Paul looks down far down the road in verse 12. If their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be will their full inclusion bring? Sometime far down the world, down the line, sometime in the future that God has determined there's going to be this great gathering 
We see it described in Revelation of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jews, non-Jews, everyone gathered together. Celebrating one another's culture. Celebrating God's work in our lives. Celebrating our differences and celebrating what we know to be true. That we are all the same in Christ and, and just enjoying that time. And Paul says... I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, he said, I am, and, and that's what God called him to do. He said, I take pride in my ministry. My hope is that as you come to know Christ, my Jewish brothers and sisters will also come to know Christ. He says, for if their rejection brought about reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance but life from the dead? There's this idea that there's going to be this great change. And then Paul uses a, um, well, he does two things. First, he reminds his non-Jewish believers, and he's very concerned about this for his non-Jewish believers. We're going to talk about it more. He says, don't become arrogant. Don't become conceited because somehow God's chosen you and it looks like he hasn't chosen his people for a while. Don't become conceited. In verses 18 and, verses, verses 18 and 20 are going to deal with that. And, and it's just this great reminder to you and me who've put our faith in Christ. We have to be so careful of an us versus them mentality. Because when it becomes an us versus them mentality, and us being those who prayed to receive Jesus, and them being everybody else that we know hasn't, we can start to get a little proud. We can start to think that we are a little better than. We can start to think that maybe we're a little more morally superior than. And I am reminded often when I start to drift that way, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus reserved his harshest, most condemning words for people in his time who had become morally superior, who thought they were better than, who thought everybody else should be as good as they were. We call them the Pharisees. They acted and lived as if they were religiously superior to, than everybody else. And you and I should be humbled by that. If that's what Jesus reserved his harshest words for, I don't want to be that person. We should be humbled as a result of our faith. We should realize that as followers of Jesus, we live in this divine tension. Theologians call it already, not yet. Romans 5.1, we saw that a, few a, few, a couple months ago, actually now. Therefore, we are justified by faith in Christ. We are already declared righteous. When you come to know Jesus, when you believe he died on the cross for your sins, and you invite him to be the leader and the forgiver of your life, you are justified. You are already declared righteous in God's sight. But Romans 7 still exists, and we all struggle to perfectly follow Jesus. It's an uphill battle battle sometimes and we live in that tension I am already declared righteous but I don't yet experience what that is 
I wrestle, I struggle, I have to confess sin, I have to ask the Lord to forgive me, I have to apologize to to family and friends when I do things that are wrong. Already righteous, not yet experiencing it. Tension. Paradox. And in in verse beginning in verse 17, Paul uses an illustration from horticulture to show God's heart and why you and I should not be arrogant about our adoption in God's family. And he uses that from the olive tree. And the olive tree throughout the Old Testament was was a a, a symbol of the nation of Israel. And so they're represented by that cultivated olive tree. And and the unbelieving Israelites are the the branches of that olive tree that haven't produced any fruit, that, that, that are in essence dead, and they're cut and cut off. And the wild olive branches that Paul talks about in this section are you and me, the non-Jewish believers, and the ultimate vine dresser, the ultimate horticulturalist, God, picks up those who believe and we're grafted in, into the cultivated tree, and we grow and we thrive in that cultivated tree. And, and to the best of my understanding, as Paul talks about the roots here, it's, it's the, the nations that are blessed by Abraham. And, and, and Jesus, in John 15, uses a vine and says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He's the nourishing sap, the nourishing nutrients that we all need. And there are two very important takeaways in verses 11 through 24. And the one, first one is this. Until the wild olive branches, that's you and me, that's the Gentiles, until they're grafted into the cultivated olive tree so that they, they, they connect to the branch and they begin to grow, until that happens, they are unacceptable. And the only thing that makes them acceptable is the work of God through Jesus Christ. As wild olive branches, you and I have nothing to boast about. Paul would write that in Ephesians 2. Some of you have memorized Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. We have nothing to boast about, nothing to make us arrogant. We are not replacement players for the nation of Israel. We have simply, by God's grace and mercy, been joined to the true community of faith that is found in Jesus Christ. And I believe there's a little bit of foreshadowing here that we're going to see in the latter chapters. See, the the non-Jewish believers, because they had a little more freedom, because they they didn't have the background of the law, they didn't have the background of all of that, so they they came from their pagan background, and there was a little freedom. Oh, I I can serve Christ. I, I can do it. You know, I don't have to worship on certain days. I can worship any day I want. Oh, you poor Jews, you have to worship on Saturday. I'm sorry. You know, oh, I can eat anything I want. Oh, you guys, you can't eat meat offered to idols because you think that's wrong. Oh, I, I can have bacon. Bacon, oh, I'm sorry, you guys can't have bacon? Oh, man, you're missing out. Bacon is the best. And they would start to kind of, again, feel that moral superiority. And Paul will talk about, no, we shouldn't make someone else feel bad for our freedom, but we also shouldn't look down on them because they follow faith in a different way. Arrogance and boasting and pride in our faith is contrary to all that God's Word teaches 
And there's a warning. Listen. Listen to verse 20 to 22. But they were broken. I'm going to pick it up, verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. This is a very stern warning that is very, very hard for some to swallow. And it should make all of us sit up and take notice. In any endeavor, I don't care what the endeavor is, in any endeavor, arrogance can lead to complacency. In any endeavor, arrogance can lead to being complacent, thinking, I don't have to try that hard. I'm, I'm the best. The old adage in sports, in professional sports, is on any given Sunday, any given team can beat another team. And when a team starts getting arrogant and complacent, they will lose. And in our faith, arrogance can lead to complacency, and complacency can lead to drifting toward unbelief. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. It's what happened to you. It can happen to you and me. You know, on the one hand in the Bible, we could, I could give you assurance after assurance of God's protection, of God's love. We sang about it. I believe it. I never have to be afraid. God's love never runs out. I believe that. And we, we know that God protects us. He preserves us. He keeps us. We have those assurances. And yet on the same hand, in a divine tension, we have this reminder. We have warnings, including this one here, Hebrews 6, other places, warnings that remind us that our faith in Jesus Christ was not just this one and done transaction and it's all over when I said a prayer one time and I'm done and I don't have to worry about how I live anymore. I can live any way I want because I said a prayer, I punched my ticket, I'm going to heaven. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. Actions have consequences and God holds us responsible for our actions and how you and I live today matters 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul would tell the church, I am hard on my body. The old King James says, I buffet my body so that I will not in any way be disqualified from preaching the gospel. I am not, on the one hand, convinced, as some are, that God may take away my gift of salvation. I don't think God takes away our gift and yet I'm not as convinced as others are that when I said a prayer back when I was nine years old in my bed in Salina, Kansas, with my mom and dad sitting there, that I am in and I am totally secure and I could live any way I wanted. I could have been a hellion and God would have said, no, nope, no, nope, he's mine, no biggie. No, God holds me responsible. And I would say this. Because I've seen it happen. God may not take the gift away. But if you return it, that's on you. 
That's what the book of Hebrews says. Those who've tasted and then have walked away, who've returned, I don't want any more to do with God. I don't want to have anything to do with him. I, I, I am no longer following Jesus. That's, that'll be between you and God. That's above my pay grade. But I do know this because it's right here in the text. God is equally kind and stern. God doesn't play. He insists that those who claim to know Jesus, he wants us to be on a trajectory of this life that shows that we are following Jesus. I was talking to some friends the other day, and I, have a, I had a mentor uh, who used to say this, everybody can tell you when they pray to receive Jesus. Everybody, oh, I, or, or maybe I made this, but, but he says, since you've put your faith in Christ, the real question is not when it happened, it's how is Jesus changing you today? If you're not, if you are the same person that you were 20 years ago, if you've got that much life, if there have been no change in your life, but you say, I follow Jesus, oh yeah, I still, I still blow up and get angry, and oh yeah, I still do this, I still do, but I know Jesus. Oh, I, I don't believe I should be in church with people. I think the church, the local church, the organized church is just a sham. I'm going to go follow. I, I don't need community. I need myself. I don't need people. I just need me. And you're not growing. God says, I want you to grow. We're called to follow Jesus. That's the one command. Jesus, one of the commands Jesus left us, follow me. God commands us to love our neighbors ourselves. How are you doing with that? Especially that neighbor that bites you. Especially that neighbor that just really gets under your skin. How are you loving them as you love yourself? It might be that pastor that you would wish would just say, okay, can we pray now and, and walk away? You know, um, how are you loving your neighbors yourself? God does command us to gather together for the purpose of encouraging one another. Who are you going to encourage today? How are you doing that? When you think that you can do fine without God and other people, there's an arrogance that grows. And that arrogance begins to affect your faith because you believe, I have nothing left to learn. I'm a pastor's kid. I was in church when I was eight days old, just like Jesus. When I was eight days old. I went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, and every Thursday. And then sometimes on Fridays when I got to high school, we had uh, groups after the football games. I memorized verses in Awana. I have a Timothy Award that says I memorized Awana verses. I can't remember them now, but I did. I quoted them word for word. King James, baby. And it's garbage if that's the sole source of my faith, then I'm not changing. I'm in danger of saying, I have lived the perfect life. There's nothing more for me to learn. And there's always something for me to learn. See, arrogance can get us to be complacent, but arrogance can also cause us to be our own idol. And Paul says, what a stern warning. Do not take advantage of the mercy and grace of God. But Paul's not done yet. He says here, and if you have a Bible like mine, remember the verse headings and uh, the verses and the chapters and even the little headings above are not inspired, but they help. 
Because what we find here in verses 25 to 32 is that mercy is ultimately available to everyone. We start with that reminder, again, the third reminder, I do not want you to become arrogant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Paul is so concerned about the humility. God has a plan. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn the godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God said, Paul says, God is a sovereign God. God has a plan. And God has, is patient. And he's waiting until the full number of Gentiles come in. I do not know what the full number of Gentiles is. I don't have a number in my head. You don't know what the full number of Gentiles is. You don't have a number in your head. Nobody knows. The apostle Paul did not know what the full number of Gentiles was. There are no secret codes. There are no decoder rings. There are no special glasses that you can put on and go, oh, this is what it is. There are no secrets within the, the, the original languages. And if anybody comes and tells you they know what the full number of the Gentiles is, run like the wind and don't look back because God says, that's my pay grade. I know what it is. In God's perfect time, there's going to come a time when God says, ding, that's it. We've reached the full number of Gentiles. Now it's time to have this great global revival so that the nation of Israel will also come. And so when Paul quotes about from Isaiah 59, Isaiah 27, and he point, both of those point to the fact that a deliverer will come, that the Messiah will come. And some say, well, does this mean that, that all Jews from past to present? I, I, I don't think so, because Paul's talking about a, a return. I interpret this to mean that when Jesus returns, the eyes of the Jews who are present then will have their eyes open because God's mercy has always been available to them. But they don't have to wait till then. At that time, we believe there's going to be this global revival, but Paul says in verses 28 to 32 that at the time as writing the Roman church right now, even at this present time, God's people are still antagonistic to the gospel, and yet they're still chosen. Look at what he says. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies. They're antagonistic, I would say, for your sake, but as far as God's choice, election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. God doesn't pull his promises. God's promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are still there. Antagonistic, yet chosen. Paradox, tension. God doesn't go back on his gifts. God is true to his word. And as their disobedience opened the door for you and me to receive God's mercy, God will grant them mercy even though they were disobedience. Paradox. Tension. 
the punishment for sin from Adam and Eve, because Paul says God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. We were all bound over to disobedience because Adam and Eve sinned, the world was plunged into sin. All of us are disobedience, but we all then can receive God's mercy. It's that reality should cause every person who has put their faith in the finished work of Jesus to just humbly celebrate. We have nothing to boast about but everything to celebrate. And that's how Paul ends this section. God's mercy is a reason for praise. It's like he's gone through this whole section from chapter 9 to chapter 11, and and he's kind of waded into that, and finally he just gets to the point where he kind of goes, Woo! Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Instead of being angry and vindictive, God is a God of mercy and grace. And and sometimes we struggle with that. How can God be so offended by the rebellion of humanity and yet still choose to sacrifice his own son for us? Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? God is sovereign. He has a plan. He has the power to see that his plan will come to fruition. The answer is nobody knows the mind of the Lord. Nobody has been his counselor. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need to call a phone a friend for advice. He, he, he doesn't need to, to Google the answer. He, he doesn't need to, to sit back and go, wow, you know, I, I, I've quoted him before, Mark Lowry. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? There's, he's not up there going, oh, I didn't see that coming. And how foolish of us to say, well, you know, if I were God, this is how I would do it. Well, you're not. Neither am I. And we can't see beyond our nose. So how foolish of us to think that maybe God made an error. Paul goes on, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? God doesn't owe anybody a favor. He's beyond being influenced by anyone. He sets the rules. He determines the conditions. As a result, he can offer all of humanity salvation through Jesus Christ. That levels the playing field for everybody. It's why God can say, as we saw last week, everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul ends, he goes, For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. God is the source. All things are from Him. God is the sustainer. All things are upheld by Him. God is the goal. All things return to Him. And there is only one word to say. Amen. Paul just finishes with this, just this explosion of just celebrate God. You know what? I don't get sometimes all of chapters 9, 10, 11, but I get this. I just need to humbly rely on God and celebrate Him. Over the past few weeks, we've examined from a variety of angles a sovereign God. We saw a sovereign God grants us the ability to choose. We saw a sovereign God who's readily accessible. And here we see a sovereign God who's also merciful. Who's in control of this world? 
It's a sovereign God. And in his grace and mercy, he invites you and me to put our faith in the finished work of Jesus. And to follow Jesus and to join God where he's working in our lives. To join him where he's working in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhood, our community, our workplace. Wherever we find ourselves, we ought to have our eyes open to say, God, where are you working? How do I join you there? And when you and I put our faith in God through the Father, through the work of Jesus, when we're indwelt indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we find that, you know what? I can live in the paradox of losing my life so that I may gain so much more. Coming back to Evelyn Christensen's book, Gaining Through Losing. She opens early on in the book with a poem, a poem that's the title is the title of the book. She says that this poem was believed to have been found on the body of a Civil War soldier after a battle. And it's a poem that drives home this reminder that we live in this tension that God's ways are not our ways. He's a merciful God, and sometimes I can't fully explain that. But I need to trust him, even when nothing else makes sense. Listen to this, gaining through losing. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men, but I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy my life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. We are most richly blessed when we put all our trust in a sovereign God who's merciful and trust him when life doesn't make sense. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these reminders from the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us, for all that you do through us. And thank you, Lord, for being great enough that we need you. You don't need us. But in your grace, you still invite us to join you and to follow you. May we be those who follow you even when it doesn't make sense. In Jesus' name, amen.